Are we at nine o'clock? Yes. Okay. Let's go ahead and get started. Um, got quite a bit of ground to cover. I was joking with the folks down on the Sunday school hall because we're having our um, we were having our little team Sunday school teacher meeting, and I uh, said so I have to run off because uh, we are going to finish up the last couple of texts uh, supporting unconditional election, and then the rest of our time today we were going to spend answering objections to the doctrine of election and meticulous sovereignty. And we won't finish today, I don't think. Hopefully we'll finish next time. Uh, but I said, who could possibly have ob objections? There are objections to election? It's like the most intuitive sounding thing anyone's ever heard, right? And so, uh, now of course I'm being facetious, um, but uh, I, I do want to look at the last couple of texts and then uh, go ahead and move forward with objections. But first, let's pray. Let's ask the Lord's help uh, that we would listen well. Oh, my goodness. That we would listen. No one told me, y'all. Someone would have told me. If I had a booger hanging out of my nose, you wouldn't tell me either, would you? That's just, I need someone to just keep it real with me. You know, you'd be like, Tyler, take the glasses off your head. Okay, sorry about that. Let's pray. God, we are thankful to be here. We're thankful, again, for breath in our lungs, for beating hearts. We're thankful for the opportunity to have a word that is sufficient. We're thankful uh, for uh, the gospel, and we're thankful for your sovereignty, calling people out of darkness who otherwise would have no chance of salvation. And so, uh, Lord, we pray that as we consider these things, we would do so humbly. We do so with our hearts and our minds. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. All right. So uh, last time we spent... Most of our time on two critical New Testament texts supporting the doctrine of unconditional election. We had kind of done meticulous sovereignty, that God is predetermines everything down to the tiniest little things. Then we talked about election, and then the Ephesians 1, and then Romans 9, we got to the unconditional element of election, not to be confused with arbitrary election. I do want to finish up just a couple more I would call them ancillary texts here on the doctrine of unconditional or election, unconditional election before we move to objections. So let me just get, I've got like four, what, how many do I have? Oh, we need to start our little slideshow, don't we? Play. Okay. There we go. Okay. Okay. So. I need readers for 1 Thessalonians 5, 8 through 10 onward there in that list, just to see this. So who wants 1 Thessalonians 5, 8 through 10? Who wants that one? Josh, 1 Timothy 5, 21. 1 Timothy 5, 21. LJ, 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9. 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9. Katie, 2 Peter 2, 3. Asher. Yeah, I saw you. Saw you getting your Bible ready there, bud. And then Jude 4. Jude 4. The whole chapter. No, I'm kidding. That's a verse. It's a verse, obviously. Jude 4. Who wants to read Jude 4? Jude 4 going once. Christian. Okay. Again, these are compared to the text that we already looked at, much smaller text. They are proof texts, you might say. I hope that doesn't... Some people, that has a bad connotation, but... Uh, Properly understood in context, there's nothing wrong with a text purporting to demonstrate something, which I take it, that's what a proof text is. Okay, First Thessalonians 5, 8 through 10, with a loud voice and a little bit of velocity. 
Okay, so again, we have the destined. We were destined for salvation. And again, it is, to return to Paul, one of his favorite themes, the through Christ, in Christ, united to Christ language. We made a big deal of that last time, okay? We are destined to salvation by God. 1 Timothy 5, 21. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without Prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. That didn't sound like what I meant you to, what I intended for you to read. Which is obviously, just to be clear, not your, not your fault. Is it four twenty one? First Timothy. Yeah. Mystery text. <laughs> Bonus points for the person who finds a text related to election that is something like that. <laughs> okay? All right. So, unfortunately, you're not going to get to read me. Well, you did. You just read something that wasn't relevant to what I was talking about. Again, I apologize. I don't know how that happens sometimes. When you're getting all, you're kind of putting out the pretext that you, you, you uh, like me, mess up. Or at least I do. All right, 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9. Let's, I almost want to read it before I ask someone to read it. But let's just take a, let's take a gamble here. The lot is cast into the lap, and so are the verses, apparently. All right, First, 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9. Okay, before the, before the beginning of time, before the ages began. This is something that has been given to people before things even got started, is the idea. Before things even got started, he called us, or because of his own purpose and grace, which is kind of the explanation that we also got in First Thess, excuse me, Ephesians 1 and Romans 9, uh, he called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So certainly we receive something in Christ when we repent and believe the gospel, but Paul here is talking about something that he gave us before even the ages, before the world began. Okay, so something given to what you might then call the elect. All right, Second Peter 2, 3. Their condemn. This is that's one of those tougher ones in, in the New Testament. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is is is, is certain. It's destined. Um, it is something that has been appointed. And so we read, of course, positive cases of predetermining things positively for salvation, for grace, and we have examples of predetermining predetermination for destruction obviously a challenging word all right jude 4 
Jude 4. Okay, there. So, long, read the very first part again. Who long ago, long ago, they were designated for destruction. Long ago. Not just, well, it just happened to be that when they did this, it was like, oh, too bad. Someone reaps what they sows. This is something that was a long time coming, something that had been predetermined. So you have predetermination positively and negatively. And I, I, there are so many more texts that you could bring to bear here, but I, I don't want to just have a proof text session uh, the rest of the time. So we, we are going to stop with, with these. And I would say, um, if, you, if you really want to go back and look at the meteor ones, the, the, the Ephesians 1 passage, the Romans 9 passage, John 6 and John 10 would be some of the, the, the weightiest longer, more extended passages that bear on the doctrine of election. Okay, well, what I want to do now is turn to objections to unconditional election to salvation in particular and meticulous predetermination in general. Okay, so this is the objection uh, answering section. And like I said, we will likely not finish answering the objections. And if you think of objections that are not in the list that I'm going to come up with over our remaining time together and our time next time, ask, even if it's not your, even if you've, hey, I heard someone say this, how would you respond, Tyler? I'm happy to do those. I'm happy to do those. Okay. I've had, you can probably imagine I've had these conversations a million times. I'm happy to tell you how I would reply to certain objections, even if I didn't put, put them on here. The first objection is the argument from conditional election. Remember, every Bible-believing Christian uh, who who just who, who at least just takes the plain words of Scripture for what they are believes in election, but not unconditional election. And so this idea here is that the the idea with conditional election is that election is based on foreknowledge, according to Romans eight twenty nine and First Peter one and two. Election is conditional upon foreseen faith. So Romans eight twenty nine is the very well known golden chain uh, that we've discussed multiple times at this point, that those he foreknew, he also uh, predestined. And then 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2 says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God, our Father. The elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So, the point is this, both in Romans 8.29, which talks about foreknowledge and then predestining, and here, which talks about elect and foreknowledge, it's like, yeah, there obviously God elects. It's just based on his foreknowledge, understood as knowing what is going to happen before it happens. That is the doctrine of conditional election. God, as it were, sees into the future, sees who would repent and believe the gospel, and elects those people grants them this salvation that he then procures in Christ, okay? How are we going to respond? Let me say this, first of all, that neither text says anything about foreseen faith. Neither one of those texts, Romans 8, 29, 1 Peter 1, none, none, none of, neither one of them say anything about foreseen faith. 
That's a gratuitous addition to what the text actually says. But the object of foreknowledge is all is people in both cases, not facts, not facts, not propositions. There's a difference between knowing about Michael Jordan because I watched the last dance and knowing Michael Jordan. Knowing, knowing that. Look at this. To those who are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge. The foreknowledge is of people. Romans 8.29 is the same thing. Those he foreknew. Those he foreknew. Not decisions or facts that he foreknew. And let me just say this. If election was according to foreknowledge, Paul's question in Romans 9.14 would be a very odd question. Do you remember this? Turn with me, if, if you have your copy of the Scripture open, turn back with me to Romans 9.14. Of course, we spent a lot of time on this last time. In Romans 9.14, as we've gone through the, the text, he gets to 14 and he asks this question, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? That would be a silly question if injustice was ba- if election was based on foreknowledge. What's the matter? He could have said, didn't you just read Romans 8.29? Didn't you read Romans 8.29? All this is based on foreseen faith. What's unjust about that? That's obviously not what he's concluding. It's obvious because his question wouldn't even make sense if what he thinks is that election is based off foreknowledge, knowing what... The, uh, they were going to do in the future. And of course, that is why in verse 9, it says that it clarifies that they were not yet born, that is to say, Jacob and Esau, and had done nothing either good or bad. Okay, this idea that election is according to foreknowledge, then all of a sudden, we don't really have any intuitive clash at all. It's like, okay, he, these people made this choice. That's why. That's not what Paul says, though. That's not what Paul says. God foresaw that they would do this. That's why. Similarly, in verse 20, same thing. Uh, Will you say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Paul would just say, who would find fault? Well, the, the person who God looked into the future and didn't choose to repent and believe the gospel. I mean, that's their fault. Instead, these questions only makes sense, as I said last time, if you were reading the text in a way that gives these jarring conclusions that might lead one to conclude, potentially, that there has been some kind of injustice or something counterintuitive uh, has happened here. That is why he says, why shall we say then, is there injustice on God's part? If, if the election was simply based on looking into the future and seeing what someone decided, it's hard to see how any injustice would be carried there. Um. Doug Moo puts it this way. He says, if Doug Moo is a, uh, he probably is an author of one of two best commentaries in the English language on Romans in the last 50 years. He says, if Paul has assumed that faith was the basis of God's election, he would have pointed this out when he raised the question in verse 14 about the fairness of God's election. All he would have needed to say at that point was, Of course God is not unjust in choosing Jacob and rejecting Esau, for his choosing took into account the faith of one and the unbelief of the other. Paul's silence on this point is telling. Okay, Instead, knowledge with personal objects 
doesn't refer to knowing something cognitively, but to knowing people, to knowing people directly and intimately. And that's key. So let me just read a couple of texts to you. Um, The first comes out of Amos. Amos 3, 1 and 2. God says, because the background obviously for the election of individuals is God's election of Israel. Everyone agrees on that part at least. God, hear this word, the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. And he says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. You only have I known out of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. It's not as though that God was not aware that there were any other nations. Okay? God's knowledge of his people isn't like, oh, I'm aware that you exist. It's not about certain facts. It is knowing them. It is direct, intimate, personal uh, acquaintance with. Similarly, in Hosea chapter 13, 4 and 5, but I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt, and you know... No God but me. And besides me, there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness in the land of drought. So again, knowledge here. He says, you don't know any other God. Well, guess what? If you asked any Israelite, they could tell you a bunch of other names of a bunch of other gods. It wasn't that they didn't know certain things. He's saying, I am the one that you know. I am the one with whom you are intimately acquainted and then... In the very next verse, it was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. I'm the one who intimately was involved with you. Matthew 7, 23. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and your name perform miracles, cast out demons and all the rest? Well, say, I never knew you. I never knew you. Away from me, depart from me, you doers of lawlessness, you doers of evil, however your translation reads. Okay? So this understanding of foreknowledge, this foreloving, this intimate relationship with, instead of knowing facts in advance, it fits far better with the biblical witness of knowledge when it's when it, with regards when it has when it has a personal object. Foreknowledge is just the same word for knowledge. It just has the prefix in front of it, okay? And so, uh, and it only occurs, by the way, uh, twice in the New Testament. And so we have to say, well, how does, how are they, what's the word foreknowledge? Well, it's knowledge that happens beforehand. Okay, so what is knowledge? Okay, knowledge seems to be this. When we have personal objects, we see over and over and over again God's knowledge of people, not of particular decisions. And so, Uh, You might say that election is based on foreknowledge. And if you mean something like foreloving, intimate acquaintance with, I'm okay with saying that. If you say election is based on, in some sense, God looking into the future, it just doesn't seem to square with the text of Scripture. Not only do you have all the other passages that talk about election and it being unconditional, but it doesn't seem to be how the word God's knowledge of people, who are always the objects of the two examples of foreknowledge in the New Testament, is used. Okay, Any questions about that? Any questions about conditional election 
according to God, looking into the future and seeing things and why that's just difficult to make a really persuasive textual case for. Does that make sense, what I've said? I've laid that out? Okay. I think, the honestly, I think the intuitive pull of that case, um, well, we're going to get to, we're going to get to that. But I would say for the kind of the average person, the view from the pew, oh, you have a question? Yes, sir. Yeah. No, very different than middle knowledge, yes. We, I don't know that we're going to touch Molinism and middle knowledge in this, uh, but no, very different. So middle knowledge is counterfactual knowledge, what would have happened. Okay? It's not past, it's not future, it's not actual. It, it's what God, what God uh, knows, God knows what would have happened, uh, but we're not, we're not going to touch on that. Foreknowledge is just what is going to happen in the future. Okay? Okay, so like prevenient grace, if it is a little bit simplistic, if it seems a little bit of a simplistic reach to understand foreknowledge as foreseen faith, just because it's not how the text itself seems to use the word, what, it, what would motivate someone to actually adopt this? Well, I was about to say the view from the pew, I think foreknowledge, when we think of foreknowledge just in common... English, we think of knowing something before it happens in advance. Having, do you have foreknowledge, or we, we think of it something like predicting and knowing beforehand. So that might be the real popular view. But but on the more scholarly level, what would motivate someone to actually adopt the view? And I'm suggesting that there are actually motivations under uh, these interpretations and understandings of conditional election and foreknowledge that are really doing the heavy lifting. You got to say something at the level of the text, yes, but there is something motivating why anyone would begin to think that. In the first place, like objection number two, if God elects people unto salvation, then either they don't have to do anything to be saved or they don't actually choose God, both of which are unbiblical. Both of which are unbiblical. And indeed, both suggestions are unbiblical. It's just not clear how they follow from the doctrine of election. It's just not clear how they follow at all. God has ordained the means of salvation just as much as the ends. And therefore, one must call upon the name of the Lord, even as, as they are called out of darkness. You must, you cannot be, God has not designed it so that people are passive recipients. Those who are elect aren't born, aren't born having already repented and believed the gospel. There is a call to repent and believe the gospel. We were like the rest of them. Remember Ephesians 2, objects of wrath? Okay, so this is part of the process. God has ordained the means in each step just as much as he has the ends. God's not more or not God's not more sovereign over the, the the moment of someone's repentance and belief than he was the five days before that. You understand? It's all part of God is God is God is meticulously sovereign. It's not as though there are certain parts he's more sovereign over and then other parts he's less sovereign over. God has ordained the means as well as the ends, and in this case, the means that he has ordained is calling upon the name of the Lord, repenting. Repenting and believe the gospel. And so you can't, I mean, you cannot wear your parents' faith on your sleeve. You must repent and believe the gospel. You cannot say, well, uh, uh, like I heard one, bro one guy say the other day, well, 
uh, I'm not a lick, so there's no hope for me. Well, that person, first of all, has, has, first of all, has no idea. But, and, and he was just using that as a stiff arm. But the call would actually, ironically, be the same. Like, if you repent, all you need to worry about is repenting and believing the gospel. That's what you need to believe. You need to believe upon Jesus Christ. You need to trust in Christ, repent and believe the gospel. Don't forget about elect. Uh, uh, forget about whether uh, you have knowledge of the fact that you're elect. We're not. That's not anything that anyone's ever called to know. Okay, but you must repent and believe. You must come out of darkness. Yes, sir. Yeah. So I, 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 so so the the um, the answer is in the form of prevenient grace. That's the story. So we spend a lot of time talking about prevenient grace, what that is, and and why that doesn't seem to be a persuasive way to understand it. So I sympathize deeply with your intuition. I don't know how apart from a special work of God that can happen, but the story from the other side is going to be prevenient grace, that everyone's heart, uh, that, that no one is totally dead, like you just said. That, that, that's a hypothetical person. Everyone has experienced a certain measure of grace. They are partially regenerated, you might say, uh, restored to something like neutral, even if they're bent towards sin, and therefore they have the ability to repent and believe without some special work. Now, I spent at least uh, at least a whole Sunday school trying to show how that is not biblical in my understanding, but that's the answer. That's their answer, okay? Um, okay, so God has ordained the means as much as the ends. Uh, so certainly uh, it doesn't follow that you don't have to do anything to be saved. It also doesn't follow that you don't have to choose God. It's just that people choose God because he first chose us, or in the language of 1 John 4, 9, we love because he first loved us. Why do you love God? He loved me first. That's why. We love because he first loved us. We love others uh, in a particularly Christian way, and we love God because he first loved us. So God's love is the ultimate reason for our love. But we do, in fact, genuinely love him. We do, in fact, genuinely choose him. I used the example a couple times ago of someone you know, who, who, who became attracted to their spouse. It's like, well, I don't, I've never talked to anyone who said they made a conscious choice to be attracted to them. I mean, plenty of conscious choices to pursue them or to be faithful, all of that. But what about just finding them attractive or lovely or delightful or whatever? You don't wake up and say, today I'm going to choose to find this person delightful. 
You might say, I'm going to take steps to make sure that I'm thinking. That, but, but just in terms of how you tend to, uh, how you tend to be impacted by something, something that we find ourselves with, and something that we find ourselves with, and there's nothing odd about that. There's nothing strange about that. And in the, in the case of finding ourselves with a love for God, how do I find myself with a desire for, to repent and believe? If God to me is like liver and onions, which I assure you, I will not desire. How do I find myself with the desire for it? How, how does that happen? Can anyone, go, I'm, I'm going to choose to really like this meal this time. It just doesn't work like that. And so the fact that, that our love for God flows out of our desires, uh, that we do not have this voluntaristic kind of control over, I'm going to determine them right now, that's not an odd thing. We experience that in ordinary life. It's just in this case, God is the one who provides a Godward desire. Because other than God providing a Godward desire, the flesh uh, would just continue to sin and run from God and be a hater of life. Okay? Any questions about either if, if election is the case, then no one has to do anything or, or, or we don't actually choose God? Both of those seem to be pretty bad misunderstandings or implications of election that don't follow. Okay, well, let's continue to go down. Let's get, we're going to continue to ratchet down and, and get in the kind of increased seriousness, you might say. Third objection, unconditional election cannot be squared with God's justice and holding people morally responsible because the reprobate are unable to do anything other than reject the gospel. Okay? I'm going to say this. A couple things. First, this presupposes that the ability to do otherwise is necessary for moral responsibility, a highly contentious philosophical claim. Everyone go watch the first uh, class in the Sunday School series. Okay? It just simply is not clear that the ability to do otherwise is necessary for moral responsibility. What seems to be much more important is how a particular action comes about. Okay? So, one, the objection presupposes a piece of philosophy, action theory, moral responsibility, and accountable agency. Number two, remember that this actually is not a, a, an objection, I don't think, that only the Reformed person has to deal with, because as I've said multiple times now, infallible foreknowledge also renders people unable to do otherwise. Infallible foreknowledge God's infallible foreknowledge renders people unable to do otherwise because, to put it at a very low level, you can't make God wrong. And that is why some of the top Christian philosophers, I don't know how many times I've listed these guys' names now, people like Peter Vandenwagen, William Hasker, Dean Zimmerman, uh, Richard Swinburne, Oxford, are open theists. They don't believe God has infallible foreknowledge because they know that means that, 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 that the ability to do otherwise, robust freedom that they want to preserve is gone. Okay, If you want to look at a philosophical essay that's like three pages long, you can stick in there for three pages. Nelson Pike's essay. Nelson Pike's essay on, uh, infall on divine foreknowledge has Jones and his lawn mowing project uh, he talks about if God knows that Jones is going to mow his grass, does he have the ability to not mow his grass? And he goes through this little thing, and, and it's a, one of those three-page essays that 
uh, exploded philosophy of religion. It's beautiful. Go, go get, check it out, Nelson Pike. But the idea is infallible foreknowledge, I would say, also renders... So I would turn back to the Arminian and say, I, that's a good question you're asking, but it's a question that we both need to ask together because you believe that God infallibly knows the future. So aren't you, you are committed to this same conclusion that the reprobate, and in fact, no one else can do otherwise. Okay? So it's not just a problem for people who reform. Okay, but three, we return to the kind of the mothership reply to a lot of these objections. And that is this vast creator-creature chasm that we see in Romans chapter 9. The creator-creature chasm. This objection right here, I would say, is almost the exact same uh, question that Paul responds to in Romans 9, isn't it? Isn't this objection like the question? This isn't fair because I'm unable to do anything. Romans 9, 19. You will say to me, why does he find fault for who can resist his will? The, the, the objection literally in the Bible and Paul literally answers it. You can say, well, it's counterintuitive. Well, fair enough. There's a lot of things in Scripture that are counterintuitive. What does he say, though? His answer to this question, essentially, right out of the Bible is, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Okay? What, well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel, one vessel, one vessel excuse me, for honorable use and the other for dishonorable use? The potter and the clay, the, 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 the potter is not a souped-up version of clay. It's a categorically different thing. It doesn't even make sense for clay to call out, no, I don't want to be uh, uh, you know, used as a toilet, a chamber pot. No, I want to be a, can I want to be a candle uh, stick holder or something. Uh, no, please make me for honorable. I guess you don't make that out of clay, sorry. <laughs> that was a bad one off the cuff, I have to admit. I don't want to be a serving bowl. Uh, I want to be. I, I, I want to be something honorable. No, it doesn't even make sense. Okay, so it's, it seems to me that this person, his 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 or her uh, understanding of the tension there is right, but for them that tension itself is supposed to be an objection. When the tension itself is the question that Paul's imaginary interlocutor here asks, and then he goes on to answer. There is this creator-creature chasm. God can do things that you and I cannot do because we are not God. God plays by a different set of rules. I know I've given a lot of examples of this, and I feel like people are going to grow, uh, grow aggravated with my continued examples of the same thing. But it's, it's it, it, the uh, example of the, uh, the person who owns the store versus the employee, right? So if I tell you that I give my friends free stuff out of the store I work at, you say, hey, what's well, wrong? You can't, you can't, that's stealing. Okay, but then I say, well, actually, I'm the owner of the store. Oh, okay. So I can give whatever I want. But notice, the, the, the exact same action is okay for someone and not okay for someone else. The exact same action. It's okay for him to do it. It's not okay for him to do it. Michael Willis, Nashville's finest, right here. This guy, right here, 5-0. He can do things... When he is in his uniform, at least, maybe without, I don't know all the rules, um, that you and I can't do. He has a, the, he plays, when he is acting in his particular role, he plays a role, he has prerogative. 
where if you and I did some of the exact same things, it would be wrong. We'd go to jail for. But when he's in that role, he can do the exact same things because he's playing by a different set of rules when he puts on a uniform badge. What I'm suggesting is all of the little examples that, uh, that, that, that try to paint God as some kind of souped up, that, that, that try to create this conflict, picture God as a souped up human. If God was a big, intelligent, strong human father and did this, how would he be? I'm willing to surrender right now that if we evaluate God like a big, souped up human being, oh, that the whole thing falls apart. But he's not a souped, uh, he is not a perfect creature. He's a perfect creator. And the creator-creature chasm is as vast as the potter sitting at the wheel and the lump of clay sitting there. They are categorically different things, okay? Election is not some strange one-off example of God doing things that it would be wrong for any human to do. We see it all across the Bible. I cannot command that someone sacrifice their son as God commanded Abraham. I cannot command that the people go run them out of people. I cannot command anyone to go run all these people out of the land and leave no one that breathes. Can't do that. I cannot lead someone into the wilderness to be tempted, but the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. I cannot harden someone's heart, no matter what they've done before. I can't go, what if I told you, hey, pray for me, I'm trying to harden someone's heart. I'm trying to harden their heart towards God. But God hardens hearts. Again, something he can do, we just can't do. We're not God. We're not creator. I cannot send someone to hell. If, if I pour gasoline on someone and lit them on fire, say, so you see, well, well, I mean, you got the, the flames of hell and all the rest. If you take, you know, no, you can't do that. The prerogative of that kind of judgment, and of course that's not even, that would be a poor, that is a dim, tragically, a very dim approximation of how awful hell would be. But it's not mine. I cannot afflict somebody with sores. I can't afflict with someone with sores. Pray for me, I'm praying that this person develops sores all over their body, even though they haven't done anything wrong. They're a righteous man, this guy's name's Job. Okay, but he's too good, and he's annoying in the neighborhood. Pray with me that he gets sore, right? You see how silly some of that, silly that, that becomes? So God cannot be evaluated as though he is simply a perfect creature. He's not a perfect creature. What? There he is. I didn't know you. I'll ask you about that later. Sorry. It's like, what on earth? I'm so sorry. Um, so remember the chasm. Remember the chasm. I'm going to give you another example of the chasm in just a second. So you don't have to keep hearing about my employer, employee, and everyone go crazy, okay? Any questions about this one, though? I try to give three lines of response to this particular question. One, it, it rests on philosophy that's contentious. Number two, it's not actually an objection to reform people. It's an objection to anyone who holds to infallible foreknowledge. Um, and that God, because of the creator-creature chasm, God simply has prerogative to do things that we can't do. And that's not some made-up excuse for election. There are a ton of examples of it in Scripture. Election just is one of a sea of things that God could do where if any of us did, it would be like, that's not loving, that's not fair, that's not kind, whatever. Election is just is just one more of those things. Okay? Any questions about that? 
Does that make sense? Yeah. Tell me, talk a little bit more. I think I think so. I think I understand the question, but I think what they would come. I don't think they would back down so quickly. I think they would say as well, um, the reprobates from God's perspective and election don't have a chance at grace given to them at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. 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 No, you're you're right. You're, and that's I, I actually touched on the fate of those who never heard the gospel that God knows about. He could have revealed it to them in a different way, or he could just not have created them. So what what you're but what you're saying is. I mean, that version is is going back and saying, hey, listen, again, here's another example where this is not a problem for uh, just Reformed people, because Arminian people believe that there are people who haven't heard the gospel and will die in their sin and go to hell, right? That's what you're saying. It's like, well, but to to compensate for that, when we talked about the prevenient, we talked about prevenient grace, there are people who do believe that everyone has heard, but to get to answer that exact objection, believe that everyone has, in fact, heard the gospel in one way or another. Some people believe that natural revelation itself is enough to repent and believe on Jesus Christ. And some people believe it's a very minority view that somehow people hear the gospel if they've never heard it right before they die. Now, and they, it's, it's all to get out of what you just said, which are 100% correct about. But it's all to get out of that and preserve some sense of fairness because they don't think it is fair that someone could die having not heard the gospel. Agreed. One. Yeah. Right. Yeah, certainly. So I, I think I think you're certainly correct about that. 100%. No one is entitled to grace. God could just send everyone to hell. 100% agree. I think what this person's saying, though, is they're talking about why a, uh, the, 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 the objection is that if someone cannot do other than what they do as a person, as a chooser, as a willer, um, then they can't be held morally responsible for anything. For anything. Okay. If I'm unable to, you know, if I if I'm unable, and this they're just applying it to the to the gospel. So if I'm I'm unable to do otherwise, and I punched you in the face, well then, you know, uh, how can I be held responsible if I'm unable to do otherwise? That, that that's what they're saying. They're they're trying to pin a philosophical principle about the lack of ability to do otherwise that I'm locked in, and that vitiates my moral responsibility. That's supposed to be the thrust of this one, and. 
but it certainly could be replied to. So you're kind of there. This is really more of a philosophical question. And you're saying, hey, the philosophical question is off base from the beginning because you're misunderstanding grace. That's what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. We're absolutely, you're absolutely right. This, this is more the philosophical question. You could say, well, hold on, time out. We've moved a little, too, we've moved too quickly, too far. You know, no one deserves grace. No one deserves grace at all. But this is a this is a comment about people who just, as we exist, we don't have the ability to do otherwise. And if you don't have the ability to do other than what you do, if your actions or whatever and everything is inevitable, then how is any individual morally responsible? For anything that they do, forget grace, forget judgment, just moral responsibility in general uh, for anything. And that's kind of what it's supposed to be getting at. Okay. Well, we are actually. Let me. Um, oh, let me. I'm going to close with this last object. It's not the, certainly not the last objection we're going to look at, uh, but I'm going to look. I'm going to show you this objection because this is the objection that people should get to, but they don't. This is after on all these conversations that I have. There's only very few people who get all the way down to this level. Uh, not to be confused with the last one we're going to look at, but here it is. And this is what I'm going to answer next time. If our ordinary concepts of love and goodness cannot cross the creator-creature chasm without being distorted beyond recognition, then we can't really know what it means to say that God is loving or good. But God has revealed himself to us humans in precisely those words, and therefore our ordinary concepts have to apply. And therefore, we can't take seriously the idea of a loving God who hardens people's hearts and creates them with no hope of anything but damnation. You're saying, Tyler, man, you're getting a lot of mileage out of this creator-creature chasm. But, but do, you, do you know where this leads? This leads us in absolute mystery and darkness about God's nature and character, if it's compatible with all sorts of things that for us would generally be considered atrocities or evil, we're left with a God who we can't even know anything about God's love, anything about His goodness. It's so radically disanalogous, so radically disanalogous that we have a God whose nature is even worthy of worship. How do we know? He's, he's told us that he's good. He's told us that he's loving. But you're telling me that his goodness and his love is compatible with all these things that obliterate our understandings of what even those words mean. That's supposed to be the brunt of the objection. So we can't even talk meaningfully about God. Uh, your, your, your solution argues too much, Tyler. Okay? Tomorrow, uh, tomorrow. Next Sunday when we come back, I'll address uh, this objection along with two or three others. Um, as we continue to move forward. Thank you for the time. Let's close in prayer. Uh, Lord Jesus, uh, we hope and pray that uh, our exercise over the Word this morning has been profitable. We pray that you would uh, nourish our hearts with these things and not only our minds. We are thankful for grace. We're thankful for grace that certainly no one deserves. We pray that you would be honored. Bless us in our next hour of worship. In Jesus' name, amen.